Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Few images attached to Islam and to the Islamic legal tradition, the Sharia in particular, are more often and more disturbingly sensationalized than that of the stoning punishment. In her riveting new book, Sharia on Trial, Northern Nigeria's Islamic Revolution, Saral Tantavi, Assistant Professor of Comparative Religion at Evergreen State College, offers a dazzlingly nuanced and lucid account of the past and present of the stoning punishment in northern Nigeria. Effortlessly moving between pre-modern and contemporary archives and contexts, Al-Tantavi traces the shifting meanings and political projects that have been invested into the stoning punishment over time. Historically grounded, theoretically exciting, and lucidly composed, this book is sure to spark important conversations and debates in multiple fields. It will also make a wonderful text for undergraduate and graduate seminars for courses on Islam, Islamic law, gender and sexuality, and on Islam in Africa. Here now is my conversation with Professor Sara Al-Tantawi. Hello, Sara. How are you doing? I am fine, Shirali. How are you? Very good, Sarah. So good to, uh, to be talking to you. Uh, as we were briefly uh, uh, discussing uh, before we went live, that uh, was such a pleasurable uh, book to read on such a difficult uh, topic, but uh, you've uh, uh, dealt with it uh, so mellifluously. And this really will be a book that will spark many conversations, uh, both among scholars and I think in the classroom also. So thank you oh. for your time. Uh, we have a tradition of new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always uh, biographical. Uh, Sarah, okay. could you share with our listeners uh, briefly uh, a bit about how you became a scholar of Islam and how you got to write this particular book? Yes. First of all, thank you so very much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here and a real honor, and it's lovely to talk to you. Um, how did I become a scholar of Islam? Well, my... Um, Academic interests have always been really diverse, so I started out being thinking that I was going to go into literature and poetry and writing, and um, and then I really I read Edward Said, and I had a professor say that logic itself was invented by the Greeks, and I decided I needed to look into another civilization. Um, and of course, I was raised in a um, Muslim household. And so I, uh, I knew that I had another cultural set of references to, to uh, explore. Uh, that led me to Middle Eastern studies for my master's degree. And then that led me to, well, then certain world events happened, such as 9-11, which led me into about five years of working in um, politics and communications and civil rights work and really exploring that world, which actually took me around the country and some parts of the world looking at Muslim communities, particularly in the U.S., like really going to major Muslim centers in the U.S. and getting a good lay of the land of how um, Islam was practiced here. And so I kind of then started really developing intellectual questions around Islam and particularly questions of reform. And then as I write in the introduction of my book, I there's one particular day in 2002 where um, my phone was just being regaled by questions about Amina Lawal. You know, is Islam violent? What does Islam say about stoning? 
And uh, that's why I came to write that book. But so um, how I became a scholar of Islam is really this perfect storm of, um, you know, just different fascinations coming together. And I really enjoy the study of religion as a field in which to do my work because I, I appreciate the interdisciplinary nature. I appreciate the the fact that, you know, one has to at least, um, you know, competently deal with the classical world and the medieval world, and in my case, the contemporary world. So I, I love the breadth and flexibility of our field. And so, um, and I'm kind of endlessly fascinated by the Muslim majority world. And, and I, I, you know, I really think that it's um, anything Islam related is very personally interesting to me and always has been and also happens to be of world importance at the moment. So I think that's how to answer that. Terrific. Uh, so, Sarah, before we get into the, the central categories and themes uh, that animate this project, let me begin with a broad uh, question, uh, which is how would you describe uh, briefly the, the central theme and argument that you try to make in this, uh, in this book? Yeah, um, so I'd answer that in two ways. The first is that when I mentioned that moment in 2002 where I got all those media calls, the two questions that really were raised for me in that moment, in that day, that um, I would go on to explore are the following. The first is that when the Western world, particularly the U.S., I would say, was really having a very strong reaction to the Amina Lawal case, you know, the U.S. threatened sanctions against Nigeria, the EU commissioned a report, several European countries offered Lawal asylum, Amnesty International generated three million letters, you know, Oprah Winfrey did a show um, so on her case. So the, the reaction was really enormous to this case. And what struck me so poignantly at that time is that this was the very moment that the U.S. was preparing the war in Iraq and that we were talking about weapons of mass destruction and getting U.N. authorization and the case for war was being drummed up and built up. And I, I could not help but notice that there was a, a certain sense in which a lot of focus was being taken away from the potential casualties of a war in Iraq, or I should say the inevitable enormous casualties of any war in Iraq, no matter how well it was fought, right? Um, so attention was being taken away from that question and sort of being projected onto kind of one African woman's potential death. And her struggle against medieval Muslim barbarity and, 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 and laws. And so I couldn't help but notice that discrepancy, that kind of politics of outrage. So that's number one. At the same time, I was working in the American Muslim scene and I had access to a lot of scholars and leaders. And I asked a lot of people about the stoning punishment in Africa and, you know, the most cursory digging quickly revealed to me that that's completely not true um, and that stoning is actually, you know, in Islamic law, as we know. And so my question then became my second. So the first question is, how do we understand this politics of outrage in the West around this case? The second big question of the book is, um, can Lawal's sentencing to death by stoning 
two years after 12 northern states decided to re-implement Sharia, be explained by Islamic law primarily. In other words, anywhere that you implement Islamic law, you're going to get results like Stonian hand deputations, almost like a recipe book. Or is it better explained or more explained by particular circumstances in Nigeria? And so when I first started the project, I was very much in the first camp, and now I am much more in the second camp. Um, so there's just a real evolution in my thinking based on my own research. Mm-hmm. So that's a big, those are two big questions, and I would just add a third one, which is the general broad question of how a 7th century intellectual and political and historical tradition, um, which is the rise of Islam, and and 7th and 8th century, right, in the 9th century and 10th century, the development of Islamic law, but all of these things happening in Arabia and in a particular milieu, how does that history um, interact with 21st century Nigeria? You know, what is that... What does that intersection look like? Um, and I, I see that as a methodological and theoretical question about religion, about Islam, um, and about history. Terrific. Uh, so there are three uh, categories uh, or terms that keep on uh, uh, coming up in this in this book, and I want to uh, get some clarity from you on those categories for the benefit of readers before we proceed. And and these are also quite central to the kind of argument that you sketch. Uh, in the pages of this book. Uh, these categories being what you call idealized Sharia, what you call political Sharia, and then what you call Sunnaic uh, triad. Uh, could you speak a bit about what these categories refer to and how they connect with the broader argument that you that you uh, try to make in this book? Okay, um, sure. So, political Sharia versus idealized Sharia. That is a distinction that I came to make following my field work in Nigeria, where I went to northern Nigeria really just to ask people why they supported Sharia and what they think of the stoning punishment, the Amin al case. And, you know, political Sharia is not my term. It's a term invented by Nigerians, and I would argue my, uh, mainly women, but I'll come back to that in a second. So... In the first chapter of the book, it's my ethnographic chapter, and it just really um, tries to explain the symbolic value of Sharia for everyday Nigerians in their own voices as much as I can. Obviously, I'm analyzing what they're saying. Um, But the reason, you know, I'm just thinking of, I hammer it home to my students constantly that there's a difference between Sharia and Fiqh. And so I actually use the term Sharia pointedly and advisedly, which is precisely to say that when people went out into the streets in 1999, you know, and people tend to not realize that this was a grassroots demand for Sharia in Nigeria, the Sharia that they wanted is precisely an ideal, right, as opposed to fiqh. They wanted this ideal that I found through fieldwork really was about ending poverty and corruption, so it's not this kind of Orientalist idea that because they're Muslims, they want Sharia. It's like a tautology. No. What people wanted first and foremost was an end to poverty and corruption, and Sharia was going to be interpreted, shape-shifted, and understood in ways that made it a vehicle to end poverty and corruption. So that is what I mean by idealized Sharia. The ideal of what this law was supposed to do 
to address particular existential concerns of the present. Um, and I would say in addition, idealized Sharia is this invaluable thing that can't be touched by, by, the, by the evil hands of man, if you will. Okay, so it's this space inside of people. It's a concept that is perfect, that is pristine, and that kind of almost retains purity in um, difficult social, economic, political circumstances. That's idealized Sharia, and that's what people went out into the streets to try to have become the law of the land in Nigeria. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly to many of your sophisticated listeners, what ended up happening in reality was political Sharia. So what that means in a material way is that, first of all, the politicians who brought Sharia to their states were by no means uh, particularly versed in Islam, particularly religious, to put it politely, or particularly non-corrupt themselves. And so uh, those very same people became the same people who were trying to implement Sharia. And this quickly um, aroused a certain amount of cynicism in the Nigerian public. And the ways in which the kind of mechanics of how you actually try to implement Sharia by changing magistrate courts to Sharia courts overnight, um, sort of ill-trained judges, and I think an emphasis on easy-to-apprehend appearance issues such as controlling women's dress or controlling um, kind of taxis and motorcycles women can be on in public. These were the kinds of emphases that were put on Sharia um, in the kind of real world. These, these were quickly labeled, the corruption of, that followed was quickly labeled political Sharia, something that fell short of the ideal. And um, Amina Lawal, that case, was seen by a lot of people as the instantiation of political Sharia. Because after all, people did not go on the streets to prosecute a, a peasant woman. They went out in the streets to prosecute governors. So those are those two terms. The Sunaic paradigm, I call it the Sunaic paradigm or the Sunaic triad, that's my attempt to, uh, another attempt to explain the symbolic value of Sharia for northern Nigerians. And that is, the Sunaic paradigm is a phrase I coined that is based more on a historical analysis of Nigeria. So my theory there is that the most immediate reason people wanted Sharia was to end poverty and corruption, as I said. So existential concerns of the present. How do you do that? Well, you immediately people turned back and looked with idealization and renewed reverence at the Sokoto Caliphate, which reigned in Nigeria from 1809 to 1903. And that caliphate was one that was sort of ruled by Nigerians for Nigerians, which is, of course, anachronistic because there, there was no Nigeria until 1960. But, you know, it's the Hausa land, which is the pre-colonial term for the northern region, that it was a, fun, you know, the Sokoto Caliphate was a functioning caliphate in Hausa land, a functioning administrative um, religious caliphate, and also the caliphate that, that I think was responsible for really aligning Hausa land with the Arab epistemic tradition of the East. And the main manifestation of that is firmly entrenching Maliki law, 
in northern Nigeria. So that happened during the, the Sokoto Caliphate. The Sokoto Caliphate had revered leaders such as Uthman Ranfodio, Muhammad Bello, his brother, Abdullah Ranfodio, his son, Abdullah Ranfodio. So um, those figures are revered, not everywhere, not in Borno State, for example, but, but um, mostly enjoying really high prestige. And then finally, so that's like the first dialectic or the first jump from the, from the present tense to the Sokoto Caliphate. And then I went and explored the Sokoto Caliphate literature, the polemical books written by Othman Zanfodio and um, some of his contemporaries. And there you see a type of framing of the mission of the jihad of the Sokoto Caliphate in these terms that remind one very clearly of the seerah, of the biographies of the Prophet, you know, small groups of men being beleaguered by outside forces, but who triumphed because of God's will. So the Sokoto Caliphate itself grounds its own, its, its own historiography is very much in this kind of sunnah seerah tradition and that harkens back to the classical period of Islam and the Prophet Muhammad. And so I began to see these as a dialectic that you could, in the present tense, jump back to the Sokoto Caliphate, which would then jump you back to the perfect time of the Prophet. So let's uh, uh, talk a bit about one of the central uh, themes of this book, which of course is the stoning punishment. And as you mentioned at the beginning of your comments, that one of the key uh, uh, objectives of this book is to try to connect and uh, think together uh, the legacy of uh, this 7th century tradition of Islam uh, with how that legal legacy uh, gets transformed and reworked in the modern context of northern Nigeria. So, uh, a question connected to that larger aspiration of this project. Uh, So, what are some of the key features of the discourses and ambiguities uh, surrounding the stoning punishment in the uh, classical Islamic uh, legal tradition? And connected to that sort of part two of that question is, uh, how do those discourses uh, from the classical legacy travel and transform in the modern uh, northern uh, Nigerian context? Thank you, careful reader of the book. This is such a pleasure. Um, okay, so, so what I talk about there is that, you know, as um, scholars of the Quran and early Islam and fiqh know, the stoning punishment in both the Sunni and Shia tradition uh, was a very fraught and contested punishment when it first entered into the Islamic tradition. First of all, it does not, the stoning punishment does not by any means originate with Islam, right? It originates in the monotheistic tradition with the Judaic world, with the Hebrew Bible, and that originates with, with surrounding Arabian legal codes, Mesopotamian, Assyrian, etc., or at least that's what the scholarship I find most convincing argues. So stoning, um, now the, it went from a property crime in those aforementioned legal codes to a moral crime in Islam. Um, but the key feature with Islam is that you know, stoning is one punishment for zina, or illegal sexual activity. But it does not appear in the Quran, right? So stoning is not a punishment in the Quran for zina, or for anything else, for that matter. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the punishment in the Quran for zina is flogging, jalat, a hundred stripes. 
So the question is, why are there two punishments for the same crime? Now, as we know, in, in Islamic legal thinking, there's no such thing as a contradiction in that sense. Um, and I can't get into the entire argument, which, you know, that's chapter two of the book of kind of why there's two punishments and how that was worked out by legal scholars. But suffice it to say here that it was a fraud and contested process that ended up with the development of two hermeneutic tools, one of which was called taxis, so specification, such that married adulterers would be stoned, whereas bikr or virgin adulterers would be flogged. And then the second hermeneutic tool was, some, was a form of abrogation or nesq, called nesq tlawadun al-hub, abrogating the recitation of the verse without abrogating the legal maxim of the verse. And so the notion was then developed that there actually is a stony verse in the Quran, but it's in the Holy Heavenly Scrolls. It's not actually recited. It hasn't made its way into the Quranic text, uh, and yet its legal maxim survives. Okay? To my knowledge, there is no other example of Nesqa Talawadun al-Hukm except a stoning punishment. So then another question immediately arises, why go to all of these, all of this trouble and all of these acrobatics to legalize this punishment? And uh, I believe that that has to do with the authority of Omar ibn Khattab, and I have a paper coming out on that um, next year, early next year, if anyone's interested in that question. And also I've written something else on, you know, why would this, given that my theory that Omar ibn Khattab's authority had a lot to do with this, why would the Shia tradition accept the stoning punishment? And I've written an essay on that, um, which uh, about uh, through the lens of Tusi, which you can find on my academia.edu page if you're interested. So it's a fascinating kind of little corner of my research that I spent a lot of time on and then just began to think about, well, okay, so how does all this translate to 21st century and all of these poverty and corruption problems in the former Sharia overnight, that people were precisely not interested in the kinds of nuances and contradictions that I just described. And instead, they wanted to, they, what they precisely wanted, in fact, was a legal system that could stone and amputate people quickly and bring justice quickly and cheaply and without a lot of fuss. Okay, so what that led to practically was vastly reduced legal codes um, and it led to what I argue in a more broad sense um, it, this, this kind of I mean this is all very complicated and there's at least a chapter on half on colonialism in the book and how that's changed the Nigerian legal system and Islamic legal system but one of the big findings of the work is that you know I call stoning a postmodern postcolonial phenomena it basically was never meted out in an Islamic court until modernity and specifically until the 20th century or the late 20th century. So another big question is, why? <laughs> you know, what, what's happened such that there's so much more stoning? And I think that, um, you know, post-colonial fracture, vastly reduced legal codes, these all um, help explain. And also in the case of Nigeria, at least, the idea that sovereignty is intimately tied to the ability to meet out life and death. And that was precisely what was taken away by the British. Um, that 
that capacity to, you know, basically issue the death penalty or not. Um, and as we all know, and often in colonial context, family law was left to, you know, local native males. So um, that's, that, that's, that, that's just scratching the surface of, of how stoning kind of translates in Nigeria. So let's get to the uh, Amir al-Lawal uh, case that, of course, we spent much time uh, discussing in this book. Uh, first of all, uh, who was Amina Lawal? Could you t- tell us a bit about her, her background and so on? And then uh, could you say a bit about her uh, her case? Uh, what were the central uh, lines of defense and prosecution uh, that came up during that case? And uh, what were the most striking aspects that you found as you examined that case? Okay. Um, my challenge here is going to be to keep this brief because I find the case, you know, endlessly fascinating. So Amina Lawal is a peasant woman from northern Nigeria, Katsina State. Um, spoiler alert, she is still alive. She was acquitted in an Islamic court. She has since remarried, and she's doing fine, as far as I know. So what happened was that in 2002, Amina Lawal and her lover at the time, um, Muhammad um, Muhammad Yahya Kurami, were dragged into court um, by kind of onlookers and accused of zina. Now, because Maliki law is operative in northern Nigeria, Amina Lawal was kept in custody because she had recently given birth. And the Maliki school of law is the only school in which pregnancy and childbirth are proof of zina. Muhammad Karami was able to put his hand on the Quran, swear that the child was not his, and walk out of the courtroom, never to be heard from again. Now, one might ask, why wasn't a DNA test done? And one of the reasons I would give for that is that, once again, we're dealing with idealized Sharia and quick silver bullet solutions, and it's not the mood. It's just, it, People don't necessarily want DNA tests. Okay. So... Um, Amina Lawal was convicted of the crime in the lower court of Bakuri, the city in Katsina. And she actually confessed to the crime, thinking that if Islamic law willed it, and if God willed it, then she would be okay. So she had full, um, she had full confidence in Sharia and in Islam as a sort of, you know, common person. Um, there's a scholar, Kamari Maxine Clark, that writes really interesting about that aspect of it. She, she calls this the micropolitics of acquiescence. You know, what's, be, what's behind that, I mean, a while acquiescing to this regime so quickly. But let's just leave that there. So she, she lost her, her initial trial. And then her lawyers appealed the trial. And somewhere in the mix, the Western world had gotten, had, had, gotten wind of this case. And so I spend a lot of time also analyzing the role of the West and Western NGOs in Amina Lawal's eventual acquittal. That's a really interesting question because, you know, according to a lot of Western commentators, the West's intervention was instrumental in getting Lawal off, whereas Nigerian sources um, would tend more to say that if any Anything the Western intervention was counterproductive and caused the right wing, if you will, in Nigeria to double down. 
Um, and so I think that there's probably more truth to the Nigerian version, but with the caveat that Western financial supports allowed Lawal to get much better and better trained lawyers. So it is not cut and dry. You know, the role of NGOs and all this, the role of the West and all of this, although the hysteria around the case seemed hypocritical to a lot of people in Nigeria and was very unwelcome to a lot of people. Anyway, so um, Lawal then kind of really got a better, got better legal counsel and she was able to win her second appeal using something, using getting off on a technicality, on various technicalities, including that she's a native Hausa speaker. She didn't understand the word Zinna. That's an Arabic word. So therefore her confession was invalid. But also, interestingly, Amina Lawal's lawyers were able to marshal something called the sleeping fetus doctrine whereby it's a concept that comes from a medieval concept that comes from Galenic medicine that um, holds that a fetus can be asleep in the womb for up to five to seven years. And so because Lawal had contracted a marriage, a legal marriage, I mean, she was married before taking up with this lover. Um, she could, her lawyers then could argue that perhaps the child was, um, a result of her legal marriage. So with that argument and a couple of other technicalities, she was released. And, you know, I go into a lot of other factors. You know, I call it post an instantiation of postmodern Islamic law. And this is why the book is called Sharia on Trial, because the case really is quickly became not about Amina Lawal, but about what Sharia is and how it's going to work. And what has to do or not do with Nigeria and the Nigerian constitution. So that's analyzed in that chapter. Now let's continue a, a bit uh, with this uh, uh, thread of uh, thinking that you've already talked about uh, just now, which is the reaction uh, to the to the Laval case, the international reaction that you also talk about in some detail in the last uh, uh, chapter, I believe, of the project. Uh, so yeah. could you say a bit more about uh, this this aspect that you just mentioned that Lawal herself was uh, in some ways uh, her own subjectivity was hidden in these discussions and it all became uh, sort of a larger ideological uh, fight over uh, the relationship between uh, the uh, uh, oppressed Islamic world versus the liberated West and so on. So could you say a bit more about this international reaction and how did that reaction uh, influence uh, the case's proceedings and outcome? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I opened that chapter, that is the last chapter, and I opened it by sharing an, an excerpt from a blog post from an American commentator that assumes that Lawal was stoned to death, <laughs> um, describes the stoning as horrific and terrible, um, and that she saw pictures of it and video of it. I'm, I'm, I don't know why I gendered that person as a she. It, it, I I might have a good reason for that, and I might not. I'm sorry. But the, the blog poster um, wrote that. And the blog poster went on to compare the treatment of Amina Lawal with how Jesus Christ treated people who um, were going to be stoned by picking up the stones and casting them at himself and declaring that let he who is without sin cast the first stone. So I just thought that that particular excerpt was was perfect in, in a, f a fairly dramatic example of projecting onto Lawal's case. 
because Lowell was not stoned, and this person actually sort of invented seeing footage of Lowell stone that certainly does not exist. Um, so that's a small kind of micro example, but the case took on much larger dimensions. And so I go into a discussion in particular between um, then Interior Minister of France, Nicolas Sarkozy, and Tarek Ramadan, a Swiss-Egyptian intellectual, in which Tarek Ramadan kind of famously uh, called for a moratorium on stoning, not a, not a, uh, I guess, a cancellation, you know, of stoning. And so Sarkozy, you know, sort of just sort of sicks him, you know, and really, you know, calls him a, a regressive and says that this is impossible and this is the 20th century, 21st century France and how dare you. And so I go into a lot of other discussions from um, American intellectuals and other European intellectuals that, you know, really take Ramadan to task for this. Why can't he, why can't he just condemn it altogether? Whereas Ramadan is trying to make the argument that it's not up to me as an individual person to condemn this punishment. It requires a conversation, a dialectic with Muslims because this is law. And so the question is, you know, what is law for Muslims in a post-colonial context, I think, and why is it so important to maintain the spirit, maintain the letter of the law, even if you don't maintain the spirit of the law? Because I ended up concluding that it's much more important to Muslims to have stoning be legal than to actually ever stone. Okay, so... Um, so I talk about that aspect of, you know, how easy it is for Western intellectuals to just sort of say, oh, my goodness, can't you just condemn stoning? It's so easy to do. And, and you know, on one hand, you would think that would be really easy to do, <laughs> especially speaking, you know, from the West as I am. And I can understand why someone would think that's very easy to do. But I try to explain why it's not so easy to do. Um, and... I don't even know if I'm necessarily coming down on Ramadan's side on this question of a moratorium. It's sort of the worst of both worlds, though I do understand what he's trying to do. And I'm, I'm but you know, I'm not very sympathetic to the kind of bullying of uh, these Western commentators. <laughs> At the same time, I do put in the introduction and the conclusion to the book a major main message: is that as Muslim intellectuals, as scholars of Islam, um, or as some combination of the two. We've just got to be a lot more systematic and serious about these kinds of questions, and we need to deal with them and stop kind of hiding from them. So that's one of my main objectives of writing this book, is that to stop hiding from questions like this. But anyway, um, and then the, the rest of the chapter on the Western reaction also really looks at the question of gender and looks at how, you know, since 9-11, we've had a lot of scholarship particularly from feminists. I'm now talking kind of Islamic feminists or feminists from the Middle East or people who concentrate, at least scholars of have understandably focused a lot of attention on how scholarship and even more broadly representations of women in the Muslim majority world can, can and have being used as a pretext for war. Most famously, Leila Abu-Luhud, for example, writing about Laura Bush using the status of Afghan women as a pretext for war, Bush's war in Afghanistan. And so, you know, that kind of colonial feminism has been critiqued, you know, absolutely rightly, 
um, since 9-11. But one issue I do raise is, well, what do I do now with Nigerian women who oppose Sharia, you know, and who see Sharia as disproportionately affecting them? How can we as scholars um, accurately represent their voices without falling into the traps that people like Abu Lughud are talking about? So a lot of the chapter also deals with that. So, Sarah, as we're coming to the end of our time, uh, could you share a bit about uh, what you're planning on doing as your next uh, project? Sure, thanks. Um, I'm currently working on a book on what I'm, what I'm thinking of, at least, as the political theology of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. So I've been turning my attention to Egypt for the last several years, perhaps for obvious reasons, but I, <laughs> I also have always been interested in Egypt. And I am looking at the develop, the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood and looking really closely at the Nahda, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, and that kind of very critical moment of almost one civilizational paradigm in Egypt passing over to another. And, um, and just really that, that, that moment of modernity and how the Muslim Brotherhood can be articulated within that moment. And then I want to use a kind of rich analysis there to ask questions of the tenure of the Muslim Brotherhood's um, one year of presidency in Egypt. What was successful, what was a failure, and what brought so much opposition from the Egyptian people? I want to see if I can really pinpoint that. Um, lately, I've been thinking that gender is going to play much more of a role in this project than I had previously thought. But I'm in, in terms of my own research, I'm still very much stuck in the late 19th century. So that it has a while to go. <laughs> um, and one gets busy with a lot of other projects and teaching, as you well know. But um, that's, that's the big one right now. Sharia on Trial, uh, Northern Nigeria's Islamic Revolution by Sara Al-Tantawi, published uh, by the University of California Press in 2017. Uh, thank you so much, Sara, for this wonderful book and for your time and uh, for this conversation. I'm sure our listeners really appreciated your insights and uh, we look forward to engaging further with this book. So thank you so much. Thank you, Shirali. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. So this was my conversation with Professor Saral Tantavi about her exceptional new book, Sharia on Trial. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Stay well, take care, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.